0: Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 18. After Hours with Andrew Lazo. Good morning, and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season we're reading Till We Have Faces. However, today is a little different. Today we have Till We Have Faces expert, Andrew Lazo, back on the show. As you recall, we had Andrew come on the show during our first episode of this season to prepare us for reading Till We Have Faces. And we'll be having him on again at the end of part two, but we're having him on now to just help us unpack everything that's happened in part one. And for those of you who are just joining our podcast, and for those of you who don't remember, Andrew Lazo is an internationally known speaker and writer specializing in C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. He's published a book, Mere Christians. Where 50 different Christians share the stories of how Lewis shaped the course of their spiritual journeys. He's married to Kristen, who is an author and speaker in her own right, and he is a former teacher, but now studying at Virginia Theological Seminary and preparing for ordination in the Episcopal Church. And pertinent to this discussion, he's also working on a long awaited study of Till We Have Faces. But in the absence of a completed manuscript, we're getting him on the show to explain everything that we've read thus far. Andrew Lazo, welcome to Pints for Jack. Well, I'm so glad to be with you all again. What are you drinking today? Oh, here you can hear it. There
1: is my beautiful Glencairn glass uh, etched with my Pints with Jack logo. And in your honor, I'm drinking Vat 69 Gold. Very nice. And what are you drinking?
0: I am also drinking Vat69, whereas you're having the gold, I'm having the straight Vat69, which I brought over, well, I brought back with me from England when I was last there.
1: Oh man, I can't wait to taste that.
0: Now, when you and I first met, you had an open Q&A about Lewis, and my very first question was, what did Lewis drink? Because (laughs) I had lots of people talk about all the beer and everything else, but nobody named Brands. And You read me uh, an email from Walter Hooper.
1: Yes. Well, a friend of mine asked me um, uh, several years ago what kind of scotch Lewis drank. And what I've found in my correspondence with Walter uh, is that if I ask a question, I'm more prone to get an answer. Uh, I'm sure that he's inundated, but he's also very generous about uh, answering my emails. And so incidentally, I wanted to let you know something I discovered since we spoke last. um, I emailed Walter and told him that I was now attending seminary. And I didn't mention where um, or which seminary. Walter emailed back, and of course, he was raised in North Carolina. He said, oh, well, my goodness, I attended seminary in Alexandria, Virginia. He attended my school. So I went right down to the alumni office and found records of him uh, attending, right? You're right where, on the campus where I am uh, in the 1950s. So when I emailed Walter and asked him about Scotch, here's what he said. By scotch, Lewis would have meant whiskey, and by whiskey, he would have meant scotch. The whiskey he sent me to buy for the two of us was Vat 69, which you can learn about from Google. It wasn't grand, but Lewis liked it. Before supper every night, his housekeeper, Mrs. Miller, would bring in a tray with two glasses, a small pitcher of water, and a bottle of Vat 69. We had a single glass of Vat 69 with water, and then went into the dining room where our supper would be on a trolley left there by Mrs. Miller. I have said somewhere that after our meal, Lewis would tell me to go back to the common room, and he would be away for perhaps 20 minutes. I wondered what he did during that time, and one night I followed him into the kitchen, where I found him up to his elbows in soap suds. He was washing dishes. If you ever tell people, he said, what it is like in this house, You must say that not only are the servants soft underfoot, but they are invisible as well. (laughs) He would not allow Mrs. Miller to stay after she'd brought in our meal. That is so she could wash the dishes. He insisted she go home to her husband and their meal.
0: (laughs) Lovely. Uh, The subtitle for Two We Have Faces is A Myth Retold. So the quote of the week today is going to be on the subject of myth. And it comes from Lewis's work called on stories. Lewis writes, the value of the myth is that it takes the things we know and restores them, their rich significance, which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. This book applies the treatment not only to bread or apple, but to good and evil, to our endless perils, our anguish, and our joys. By dipping them in myth, we see them more clearly. I do not think he could have done it in any other way. So with that, cheers. Cheers.
1: I loved that idea. I think later in that essay talks about eating cold meat as a as a boy and if he imagined that it, he was a native american who had hunted his own buffalo, that made the cold meat go down better and so he says most things are better if they're dipped in a story.
0: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: So, and I think we talked last time about his quote that he was, his purpose is a letter in 1955, right after finishing Till We Have Faces, was to catch the reader unawares through fiction and symbols. So I think he's dipping a lot of things in his retelling of this old myth.
0: And that makes it not always immediately straightforward. Yes. So we've now finished part one and Matt and I, we've talked through the chapters, but there's a lot that we haven't really fully understood. So... I really just want to give you the floor, however you want to unpack part one of this book, and in so doing, attempt to answer the question, which was raised just the other week by one of the members of our San Diego book club, who after reaching the end of part one, asked the question, what the heck did I just read? <laughs> <laughs> and remember, that's what I call the, the Till We Have Faces
1: whiplash, kind of goes right over your head. And that's an accurate, um, that's an accurate uh, reading of that. Uh, it's very
0: understandable.
1: Now, when, when we were getting ready for our talk together, you told me to have no spoilers about book yes.
0: two. You're not allowed to tell us what happens in part two. We, we will get you back on the show and we will do this again there because I've got a feeling there's a lot is going to change.
1: I won't give you any spoilers, but I do want to, um, to, to just mention one thing that she says at the beginning of book two. Orwell, in book one, we get to she's old and she's writing all of her life. And of course, right at the very end, she finds the temple to Psyche and the story is getting about and it's getting about in the wrong way. And so she races home uh, in order to write her story and to kind of put the, put the record right, put the story straight. One of the things that she says very early on, and I won't go past the first line of paragraph two, she says, since I cannot mend the book, I must add to it. So in book two, she starts an amendment of all of book one. To leave it as it was would be to die perjured. So one of the really crucial things that your readers should know, and you should know as you're reading your way through it, and once again, I envy your position, it's really important to know that Orwell is lying throughout the length of the book, especially in book one. And so you have to take everything she says with a grain of salt. To leave it thus would be to die perjured. You can't trust her. In fact, if you want to get accurate knowledge of the gods from Orwell, what you have to do is take her lies and turn them right side up in order to get spiritual truth. Does that sound like any other book that Lewis has written?
0: Turning everything upside down kind of sounds like screw tape.
1: It's exactly screw tape. And in fact, that was the big key revelation epiphany that started me on my research in 2006 as I was prepping to teach it at Williams College. Orwell is lying and Orwell is screw tape, but much like Lewis everywhere else, he's often turning things upside down so that in turning them right side up, we can see them more clearly. It's a very medieval riddle type technique. And that's what he's doing here. Orwell has been lying lying to us through all of book one. Now, not everything she says is a lie, but we can't trust her.
0: It's all kind of tainted. Uh, I'm actually preparing to give a talk on the screw tape letters myself in Los Angeles in a couple of weeks. And one of the things that I like about screw tape is the fact that because we have everything upside down, it allows us to hear the spiritual lesson afresh. So that when we start processing it and turning it upside down, mm-hmm. the spiritual truth that I think that would otherwise appear bland and platitudinous and a bit boring gets its real potency.
1: Yes catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol, and very often chiastically, right, this Greek word X, turning things up when they're going down. Um, a great easy example is if you think about the myth of Narcissus, he's so beautiful that he sees a vision of himself, he falls in love with himself, and then he dies. Eustace, in The Voyage of the Don Treader, is so ugly, right, he becomes a dragon, And then when he looks into the mirror of the pool and sees how ugly he's become, he despairs, and because of his despair or self-hatred for his ugliness, he lives. It's a very opposite flipping of the Narcissus myth that he does in Eustace. And Lewis is consciously doing it all over the place. Wow so there you go um if you don't believe me i'm actually i spent an hour today i've i've committed this semester to spending an hour a day working on my annotation of till we have faces and i'm only four pages in um
0: (laughs) on the original source material
1: yes uh wonderful joel heck has typed in every single book by c.s lewis into individual word documents and he has shared this one with me um She talks about in the very beginning of book one, being for all these reasons free from fear, but that's just not true. More than 50 times throughout the narrative, an average of once every every five or six pages, Orwell describes herself as having fear, feeling horror, or being afraid, or being in terror. She's lying to us, and you have to kind of find out where she's lying, and you have to flip those things right side up. So. That's I think a key as you're looking at and then that great quote from from the second paragraph of book two, to leave it as it was would be to die perjured. She's committed perjury. So she hasn't really always told us the truth. We find an incident of this. It's a it's a lie by omission. What's that key fact? Do you remember the key fact that she always withholds from the fox and from Bardia when she tells about her experience seeing Psyche?
0: The fact that she glimpsed the palace. Glimpsed the palace, exactly. Um, And
1: that's crucial, that passage right there. And in fact, that whole passage is really, really indispensable.
0: That was actually the point at which I think Matt lost sympathy for Orwell. Because throughout this season, he's, I don't know if it's really her fault. But when it gets to the point of her omitting that description, I think that was when his sympathy for her kind of died. Yeah. Because even if, even if it was a trick of the light, you still share that. Yes. Because that needs to be taken into account with the reasoning. If you omit that, what does the fox have to go on?
1: Yeah. You know, without question, Matt, I encourage you to to go ahead and, and be disappointed by Orwell. I've had uh, wonderful conversations with Max McLean, who says, well, I just don't like her. Um, <laughs> but here's the crazy thing. What are the first two words of book one? It's I am. Mm hmm. I am old now and have not, not much to fear. We have to speak through Orwell's voice. We are Orwell. And I think perhaps one of the reasons that we don't like Orwell is that she reminds us of our own self-deception so poignantly. And so I would be careful about not liking her because
0: <laughs> she's us. But I think going back to what we said about screw tape, that's also Mm -hmm. Part of what I think this book is, is doing because Orwell's complaints are very much like our own complaints. Why doesn't God show himself more clearly? Why doesn't he speak more clearly? Why do I feel like I'm having to try and work out a riddle? We are all Job who's railing against God saying this happened and it's not fair. Why? Exactly,
1: and without any question, I I thoroughly agree with you, and that's what troubled me so much in my first reading of the book. I found her arguments against God so easy to agree with, and I would say, yeah, 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 you gods, absolutely. And I wanna take a look, I think this is the key passage. In fact, I had a a wonderful conversation once with James Como from the New York C.S. Lewis Society and many of the the Lewis books. His latest is a very brief introduction to Lewis. Jim Como and Diana Glyer and I read a conference in San Diego and in my usual understated, uh, humble, self-unpromotional uh, manner, I said to James, I said to Jim, I know more about Tilly Faces than anybody in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it may be true. Jim said, oh yeah, well, what's the most important page? What's the most important line? And I quoted it to him and I explained it briefly. And he stared at me and, you know, here's this New York Italian, you know, rhetoric professor. He stared at me and he said, I need to go rethink and rewrite and you need to write your book until we have faces.
0: (laughs) It's rather like, master, what is the most important commandment of the law?
1: (laughs) Exactly. So here's that passage. And I think this is really crucial to understanding all of book one and to setting you up for what happens in book two. It's on page 95. And fortunately, most of the paperback editions have uh, have the same pagination. So this is chapter nine. It's about halfway through. Remember, she's going up the mountain in order to bury Psyche and to have a bleak life ever thereafter. And remember that she's talking about going on the the holy road with Bardia, and the dew that made the glass jewel bright, and how beautiful it was to the left and the right, behind us the whole colored world with all its hills heaped up, and the lark was singing. Birds singing in Lewis are crucial, so pay attention. And here's this from page 95 to page 96. My struggle was this. You may well believe that I had set out sad enough. I came on a sad errand. Now, flung at me like frolic or insolence, there came as if it were a voice. No words, but if it, if you made it into words, it would be, why should your heart not dance? It's the measure of my folly that my heart almost answered, why not? I had to tell myself over like a lesson the infinite reasons it had not to dance. My heart to dance, mine whose love was taken from me, I, the ugly princess who must never look for other love, the drudge of the king, the jailer of hateful red perhaps to be murdered or turned out as a beggar when my father died. For who knew what one would, would do then? And yet it was a lesson I could hardly keep in my mind. The sight of the huge world put mad ideas into me as if I could wander away, wander forever, see strange and beautiful things one after another to the world's end. The freshness and wetness all about me, I had seen nothing but drought and withered things for many months before my sickness, made me feel that I had misjudged the world. It seemed kind, laughing, as if its heart also danced. Even my ugliness I could not quite believe in. Who can feel ugly when the heart meets delight? That's the key of the whole book. That's crucial. It's
0: obviously very reminiscent of all of Lewis's discussions about joy, his great love of nature, and it also puts me in mind of that passage in Screwtape, where Screwtape is shouting at his nephew for letting the man go on this yes. beautiful walk. Yes. And en- enjoy nature and just be happy.
1: And have a real pleasure, right? Read a book he really enjoyed. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Not just because it's fashionable.
1: Okay, so here's the thing. This is my proof that she's lying, okay? When she hears this, in these words, why should your heart not dance, she tells herself over like a lesson mine whose love was taken from me but in 12 minutes her love is going to be given back to her right Mm -hmm. i the ugly princess who must never look for other love well you know the four loves well enough did she have friends certainly she had bardia she she had pooby who was a storgi love she had i mean how many people loved her
0: loads of people loved her and even lots of unnamed servants yes Yes, when they see her hurting, they are the ones who cry absolutely Pooby, her servant, and then Arnom at the end you know says that she was the
1: most wise, most beloved queen in all of the region, the drudge of the king, but soon after she would become the ruler, she would become the queen, the jailer of hateful red of all, but she marries her off, and that and that- that provides peace, so she's no longer a jailer, perhaps to be murdered, she wasn't or turned out as a beggar, she wasn't when her father died, for who knew what Glum did then? She's lying to herself, and she tells herself like a lesson all the reasons her heart has not to dance. But what question does she not ask? She doesn't ask, who's speaking, please? This invitation to dance is exactly what you what you just touched on, David. It's an invitation to joy. She's invited to rejoice and she's invited to get over herself and to think about the joy of the world. And she refuses
0: it. And I think that refusal turns into blindness. And she refuses it both then and also then when she meets Psyche, who asks her that very question, why should our hearts not dance?
1: So now let's answer the question. Is this invitation to joy something that she has in a Freudian way repressed inside of herself? Is this invitation to make her heart dance? Does that come from Orwell, in your opinion?
0: No, it comes from everything from without.
1: Be careful. Not everything. Who's speaking? Who would be speaking into her mind? I assume the god. Which god? The god of the mountain. And she's on the mountain. Mm-hmm. The god of the mountain, Cupid, Eros. The god of the mountain who is married to Psyche. What does Psyche mean? Soul. It means the human soul. The God of the mountain, who is the husband of the human soul and who is himself the son of the God of the mountain. It's Monday. Yesterday I was in church and I heard all about the God of love, who is the son of the God of love, who is the bridegroom of the human soul. Love is speaking to her and inviting her to joy. And let me suggest this. From my studies until we have faces, Lewis doesn't care nearly as much about joy as he cares about love. And love is a turning outward from the self to think of somebody else.
0: When you were going through Oral's listening of woes as to why she shouldn't be happy, the phrase I heard in my head was the Latin phrase incurvatus in se, which is what we said throughout the Great Divorce. It comes from Augustine, it was used extensively by Luther, and it's to describe a soul that's turned in on itself rather than outward.
1: Yes. And this is something that I said when I was doing the talkbacks from Max McLean's Great Divorce here in D.C. The opposite of love is not hatred, but pride. It's me. It's mm-hmm. mine. It's Pam in Great Divorce. The boy is mine. The boy is mine. Now, The Four Loves, which is crucial to Till We Have Faces, I believe that The Four Loves is Lewis writing in prose what everybody missed in the novel Till We Have Faces. There are two drafts. There's no audiobook of The Four Loves. There's only a recording of a 1958 script. And my friend, Becca Choate, has transcribed that script. So you can download Lewis's voice reading The Four Loves. In there, there's a wonderful definition of love. Lewis says that love is where we go out of ourselves towards another. Mm-hmm. So it's turning from me and turning to another. Okay.
0: The definition from St. Thomas Aquinas was love is to seek the good of the other as other.
1: Exactly. For exactly. themselves,
0: not for anything that I can gain from it. Exactly.
1: To seek somebody else's good, absolutely. and he talks about that in the charity chapters of uh, mere Christianity. He talks about it in the, the Agape chapter of Four Loves. But to go out of myself, to, to out of ourselves to seek another, turning from me to you, that's the fundamental idea of love. Here's what I suggest, David. I used to think that Lucy could see because she had the gift of faith. But when I looked at the text, I didn't find evidence of that. I think that Lucy can see because she loves. Remember that her Christmas gift is a cordial. That's from cordae, meaning the heart. Mm -hmm. Remember what the albatross Aslan whispers in her ear. Courage, dear heart. And courage is also heart. Lucy sees because she loves. Remember, she loves Tumnus. She has pity for Edmund, right? She turns from herself and thinks of somebody else. The center of C.S. Lewis is not joy, but it's love. And it's turning from self. It's turning from pride, which in Book 3, Chapter 8 of Mere is the great sin. And it's turning towards anyone else. Remember the great divorce? If anybody will turn from themselves to anything outside themselves, they have a chance to get to heaven. Orwell is given this invitation to joy. But remember that joy is absence. Joy is longing. Joy points to the absence of and the longing for love. Lewis says that in the, at the end of, of Surprised by Joy, that joy is a signpost for something other and outer. And those words yeah. other and outer, I think, are a clear pointing to Lewis's theology of love.
0: And he said he cared less about joy later in his life. I think it's because he saw where the signs pointed. And so, it was now less about excitement at seeing a sign. Because when you're excited about seeing a sign, it's usually when you're lost. <laughs> right. Right. But, but once you see the signs and you're Every, everything's pointing to San Diego for the last half hour and you get excited about coming to San Diego. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And what did Lewis lack? He lacked love. He lost his mother. He didn't have good friends in school. And so it's, I think joy always is this keening, sharpening towards wanting, wanting love, which he lacked. Orwell is given an invitation to joy. Why should your heart not dance? If she had said, yes, my heart will dance, I will take this and I will get over myself and I will be thankful for the beautiful world. I believe, David, if she had said yes to dancing, yes to love, yes to joy, she would have gone down in the valley and she would have seen the palace and she would have seen Psyche in all of her finery. It wouldn't have been the cupped hands. It would have been the goblet. It wouldn't have been the water. It would have been the wine. Love transforms water into wine unless we will not be taken in like the dwarfs at the end of the last battle.
0: And willing to die to self, because Lewis says that nothing which hasn't died could ever be raised from the dead. In the same way that when there's the Eucharistic liturgy, we say, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ.
1: Yes. And how do we, what's the virtue that describes me dying to myself? What virtue is that? Humility humility. What is the physical position of humility?
0: On your knees, which is how she was when she saw the palace. Yes.
1: And remember that screw tape reminds us that the body
0: needs to pray too. Let your patient not think that the position of his body is important. Right. I think that even when her body makes a motion
1: that is, she doesn't intend it as humility. She's just thirsty, but remember thirst from silver chair, right? There is no other stream, right? Mm-hmm. Are you thirsty, child? Says Aslan and our Lord. Um, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. I think that the first, which is longing, right, drives her physical position to humility. And it's the physical position of humility that gives her the true vision. And then she lies to herself about it for the rest of the book. That's why to leave it like that would be to die perjured.
0: The other thing that I suggested when we got to that passage was not only is she kneeling, she also comments that she removes her veil in order to drink. Yes. So not only is she in a position of humility, she's in a position of vulnerability. She is showing herself.
1: Right. And that's for loves. To love it all is to be vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. And the only place that we can be safe from the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. I hadn't noticed that. I'm going to use that in my book. I'm not going to give you a footnote.
0: (laughs) That seems fair.
1: So that's crucial. Did you look up... Now, I challenged you a couple of days ago on text to look up the first and last words of book one. Did you
0: you have a chance to do that? I did did look them up. They seemed fairly insignificant. Okay. What are the first two words of book one? Uh, I am. And what are the
1: last two words of book one? No answer. This is humility. And all of book one tells us, tells Orwell, I am no answer. I am no answer, right? These words, no answer, will echo through book two. I won't give you any spoilers, but pay attention to those words. What happens in book one is what happens in Surprised by Joy up through the chapter Checkmate, and Lewis realizes that he and all of his searching and all of his longing is no answer, okay? One of the things that I have discussed with um, Professor Alistair McGrath is that my discovery of Lewis's first autobiography of his conversion to theism, Early Prose Joy, that's a piece of Lewis's autobiographical arc, is what I call it. So he writes Early Prose Joy. I've published it in seven. He writes a poetic version I will write down, and Don King has wonderfully put that in the, the critical edition of Lewis's poems. So there are several autobiographies. Early Post Joy, I will write down. Pilgrim's Regress, which Lewis said he wrote before he knew how to make things easy. But that's another (laughs) spiritual autobiography. And then we have Surprised by Joy. So those are four editions of an autobiography. I suggest that Till We Have Faces is another autobiography. And I'm going to also then throw in Dimer, which is about a search for joy. So even before Lewis converts, he writes this long narrative poem about a search for joy. And now we have six different autobiographical attempts to tell the story of joy reaching out towards love. And then you may even consider throwing in grief observed. And now you have an autobiographical arc that spans the whole of Lewis's published life. I think that Lewis keeps writing these different versions of autobiography, especially spiritual autobiography, because he can't quite get it right and can't quite tell the story that he needs to tell, and that he finally tells it as rightly as he can once he turns from doing it in prose or poetry till he does it in the novel Till We Have Faces, which he writes with Joy Davidman.
0: Hmm. I, can, I can see that. Mad and I have said quite a few times that we've, that we've seen Lewis, particularly in Orwell. And kind of in the funny way because I'm an introvert as well and so when she's complaining about the fact that she has to go and put on a banquet and all she wants is just a quiet dinner at home with a couple of friends and she has to do this big thing and... I couldn't help but think of the passage in Surprise by Joy where Lewis is just railing against this woman who has invited him to a party. What had he ever done to her? He'd never invited <laughs> yeah. her to one of his parties. Why yeah. was she being so cruel?
1: <laughs> exactly. And his letters, especially in collected letters, volume one, letters are full of all of that. Yeah, he really he really didn't enjoy that. But I think that that's kind of the crucial stuff. And I think that we're right to see um, to read to we have faces alongside Surprise by Joy. Um, Those who listened to my first visit with you will remember that I said that every single book by C.S. Lewis is present until we have faces Mm -hmm. and some more potently than others. And so initially what I saw was screw tape because of the lying. I saw a lot of the different loves represented, thwarted loves in The Great Divorce. I certainly saw the four loves and those are kind of the first three. But Lewis doesn't do things by half measures, does he? And so, if he's going to include all of those, I wonder if every other book might be present. And damned if I have not found in the last dozen years and more, every single thing that Lewis wrote is present, at least in idea, if not by quote, until we have faces.
0: Yeah, particularly since we had just come off a season where we were looking at The Great Divorce, that was the one that was really strong to me, because it was all about the lies that we tell ourselves the lesser loves that we choose instead of the greater one. You know, the, it's it's all that weight of glory where he talks about we're just playing in mud when we don't know what it means to yeah. be on a vacation at the sea. Making mud
1: mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what a holiday in, at sea might mean.
0: And even in the way that the landscape in The Great Divorce is a character, there was even a mimicry of that with the mountain. The first time she's going up the mountain, the mountain is welcoming her, saying, let your heart dance the next time she comes up when she has this plan in mind it's almost like the mountain is saying go away don't do this Flinty,
1: right yeah the flinty rocks yeah no absolutely i think that's absolutely true um remember pam in Mm -hmm. in the great divorce and what does she say about michael
0: that he is hers he's mine 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 and even what orwell does to saki's room is equivalent to what pam does with her son's room when Reginald is talking to her about it, he says it was Egyptian, it was embalming. Yes, yes. She was just trying to freeze it in time and hold on to it, even though there's no life there anymore.
1: And she says, there's no greater love than a mother's love, which is a popular misnomer. And I will never be a mother, so who am I to say? But there must be a greater love than a mother's love. Even Our Lady would say the same thing. She would say, do what my son tells you to do, right? Um, The greater love is God's love and the best mother love should point to that. But Pam would drag Michael back down into hell, you know. And so um, she says, I believe in a God of love. You know, what kind of God would keep a mother from her child? But it's a God of love who won't let her drag Michael out of deep heaven and down into the grey town with her. And you're going to hear echoes of that in book two. So I won't spoil it for you, but but, uh, keeping Pam in mind. And remember that Orwell has this kind of story mother love for, uh, for Psyche.
0: And both with Pam and with the tragedian and with what George MacDonald says, uh, a passage that I've heard in my head as I've been rereading the chapters we're about to discuss as we've been finishing part one, it's the idea that there will come a point when love can't be held to ransom by size. Right. There, there will come a point when that love has to be free when joy can be embraced fully without it being blackmailed. Uh, I think MacDonald says, otherwise you'd make a dog in a manger, the tyrant of the universe.
1: Yes. And and Lewis makes much of the the quote that he got from Denis de Rouchon, who says that love ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god, right? When we make a god of the natural loves and don't allow them like a kernel of grain to fall into the ground and die and then be resurrected, when we keep our loves that are our own possessions, like the red lizard. When I keep it, it becomes selfishness and lust, or whatever that addiction is. When I let it be killed and raised from the dead, I ride that gift on past everybody else and I make progress into high Mountain. So rich, this, this book is, is very rich. Um, I will advise your readers practically, as you read book two, it's only four chapters, you're eager, uh, if you're reading it for the first time, to get to the end, I would savor every word. Lewis has built line upon line. I don't think that there's a word or a comma out of place. And my tendency is always to take it in great gobbets. (laughs) But I would also, if you do that, I would go back and read it again and read it out loud. It may be a really good thing to read to someone else. And I would pay attention. Lewis had this habit of writing what I call running titles on the top of each page. And so we would put five or six words, five or eight words on the top of each page to kind of describe what happened. And it's kind of a running commentary or a gloss. You've seen it this mm-hmm. in Coleridge and elsewhere. Um, that's a good way to read book two is to kind of gloss it and to pay really close attention. Book two is very kind of confusing and, and mystical, um, but it really pulls everything all together. And there's not a word, not a jot or a tittle out of place.
0: I'll definitely say that reading this book slowly, I've been really pleased that I've been forced to do that because of this podcast. Cause I don't think I'd have read it slowly. Otherwise. Yes. Particularly when I want to know what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and actually that was the same advice that, uh, Christine novel, uh, she suggested, she said, read this thing slowly.
1: Yes. Yes. And by the way, thanks to you, Christine and I are working together. I'm doing some work with her on her, uh, on a revised edition of her study guide to till we have faces. I'm terribly remiss and, and behind, uh, of behind foot on that. But um, but uh, <laughs> she and I have gotten connected because of your good work.
0: Excellent stuff. I'm glad to hear it. So changing gears a little bit, listeners who support us on Patreon with a donation of $5 or more each month, they get access to our Slack channel and they therefore have an opportunity to submit questions for Andrew to answer. So Andrew, you have access to the Slack channel. Which of the questions do you think you haven't really addressed so far and that uh, have some gold in them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. By the way, do I need to, um, to donate? I'll donate my $5 if you want. <laughs> <laughs> you,
0: you give me your time and I want uh, a copy of your book when it comes out.
1: Uh, cheers, absolutely. Um, and by the way, what I've been working on now, I'm, I'm doing an annotation of each page um, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that that will kind of also spur me into some time to do, to writing a critical edition, but, but doing the annotation is something that I can do at pace uh, even during my busy seminary life. So, so two projects in the work, and, um, I'm in talks with the Wade Center. Hopefully that that may turn into an annotated edition of Till We Have Faces. Um, there are a number of these, and maybe you and I can talk offline about, um, about how to address them, um, because I've got more to say than you have time. Um, And I think these questions are marvelous. And so uh, I'll just kind of take them in order if you see any of them that you want me particularly to address. There are a couple of quick ones that I can answer. Um, The god of the wind is the god of the west wind, and that's Zephyr. And uh, Zephyr plays a role in the Cupid and Psyche tale. And I would encourage you all to read the note at the end of the book that Lewis wrote, and then maybe read his summary of Apuleius's telling of the Cuban Psyche man. So that's the god of the West Wing. He's a gentle god. Um, Who's the god of Ungit? Well, Ungit herself is a god, and as the fox makes clear, she is Aphrodite. It's what you would call Aphrodite, uh, but maybe more near the Babylonian version. So uh, the fox refers to Ishtar. So think about Unget as being Ishtar, Aphrodite, Venus. You also want to think about her as Paralandra, okay? And once you do, that's an invitation to think of her at least tangentially as the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there's a lot more to Unget, and I wouldn't trust Orwell's depiction of Ungat. She's the goddess of love. So, uh, and that may, it may bear your readers a rereading of the uh, Four Loves, especially his his section on Venus. Let's see, Uh, I believe it was the priest who mentions that the shadow brute is the son of Ungat. Yes, so uh, once again, Lewis's note is the place to kind of of start the shadow brute. There's this kind of question, is it a shadow brute? Is it a a thief? Is it the God of love? Uh, Why is he only in the dark? There's a little confusion in Greek myth, but Greek myth liked confusion. So they typically mess up timelines. Um, so there's this kind of idea that the consuming and the loving are all the same thing, but that's absolutely what happens in mass every weekend, right? Consuming and loving are the same thing there too. And Lewis is absolutely intending these things to be both confusing and pointing towards some of the great spiritual mysteries for which we don't have easy answers. Is that good so far? Shall I keep going?
0: Yeah, let's just keep chucking.
1: Okay. Is it bad because it seems the temple is dark and disgusting? Lewis, I don't think, would say disgusting. And remember what Psalm 97, I believe. I just did a note on this in the annotated today. Psalm says that clouds are round about God and shadows veil him from our eyes. And so holy places are dark places. And that's not just an idea from Tell We Have Faces.
0: You have Sinai itself and you have the pillar of fire, but also the pillar of cloud. Exactly.
1: And Moses veils himself so that others cannot see the light that's on his face. And I think that we have some chiastic flipping too in that. And I won't tell all of my secrets about that until I write the book. Um, We also know that if she describes Angit as grasping and consuming and hateful, we can't trust her because she is lying to us. Okay, so let's...
0: One question on that. Yeah. Does she know she's lying? How aware is she that she is misrepresenting what is true?
1: And that's what I mean by the second sentence of paragraph two of book two. To leave it thus would be to die perjured,
0: right? But was she an accidental perjurer or was she knowing? No,
1: she's the ac- She's not at all accidental because she doesn't tell the fox and she doesn't tell Bardia. And mm. we make the mistake to kind of go along with Bardia and the fox and their reactions, but if you go back and read that passage of her coming back from the mountain and speaking to Bardia and speaking to the fox, if she had told Bardia and the fox that she actually saw the palace when she was on her knees, for goodness sakes, she could have gone to the priest of Ungut and said, I got on my knees and I saw the palace of the god of the mountain. Hmm. Then even the priest would have given her wise spiritual advice. And remember that. Lewis is kind of representing three different worldviews in Bardia, the fox, and the priest. The fox is stoic philosophy, you know, lies of the poets, and it's all according to natural purposes. That's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. Bardia is like, well, I'm just gonna do my duty. Well, piety doing one's duty is good, but it doesn't go far enough. The ritualistic nature of the temple worship, well, that's good. It's what Lewis would call thick religion, in Christian apologetics, in God in, God in the Dock, um, it's not clear religion; it's thick religion. Um, but it's good only as far as it goes. So each of these three approaches come close. If Orwell had taught, had, had told each of the three what she really saw, I think that would have changed everything. And each of them, in their own way, would have told her what her duty was to do. Um, but she refused to because she was lying to them. No, she's a liar from the from the word go.
0: And in particular on that front, the one that really annoys me was the fact that she doesn't wait for any further conversation with the fox. She rushes back up to the mountain on a collision course with something that is not going to be good. This is not going to end well.
1: See, the difference between idolatry and the worship of the true and living God is that idolatry is when we create the gods in our own image. Mm. And worship is when I receive from God his own image. And remember the great commandment. And remember what Lewis calls the intolerable compliment. And the overarching underlying theme, not only of Lewis, but of all the universe, is love. That's part of why I'm training to become a priest. And that's part of why the phrase that I keep using for my kind of field theory of Lewis is clarity and charity. Right? Claritas et caritas. To see clearly the love of God. Because she refuses love, because she refuses these things and turns into herself, she won't sit still to be loved. Right. Mm-hmm. Therefore, she can't give love. But the gods still, it's this wonderful, it's one of the five, um, the five sonnets that Lewis writes in his, in his poems. It, it's the, the, the love of God is like the, 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 the moth that booms against the window pane for hours, thinking that the way to reach the flowers. Right? God's love is crashing on us like the tide, and we won't abide God's love. But if we will sit still for the love of God, it will transform our lives. Orwal won't sit still for it until, well, I'll let you readers continue reading.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it certainly has become very clear towards the end of part one that she is actively making sure that she never sits still. No, be still and know that I am God. No, still, small voice. It's back to screw tape again. What noise. We need lots of noise to drown everything else out.
1: Yes, yes. Music and noise, how I despise them both. So I think that there's, there's this frustration of love. She's thwarting love, right? She's keeping Eros from his, from his wife, right? She's thwarting all of the three natural loves. And you'll see that in book two, how she, she sets out to thwart the loves, But even though she resists love, love doesn't resist her. Love overcomes her. And that's why uh, somebody asked, is there evangelism in it? Well, I would recommend Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, which is fantastic. Tolkien said that fairy stories present us this sudden surprise, happy ending. Tolkien famously calls it eucatastrophe. Remember, this essay is written in 1947. It's one of the last things written in the Inklings. It's in essays presented to Charles Williams. And I would accept it as kind of the manifesto of Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings kind of mythopaic modernism. So evangelium means to go out and bear good news is what the Latin means. And there is evangelism. There is good news. The good news is that love will keep pounding at our borders no matter what we do. Until ultimately we say, thy will be done. Either we say that or God does. And once again, there's selfishness, me, 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 me. Or there's humility and love, you, 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 you. And that's the same choice that Lewis keeps bringing us to. It's what Ransom says to to Weston. Say a child's prayer, we'll be all right. He calls him we, right? He reaches out to him. He tries in love to save him still way down deep in his demon-possessed soul. And love just keeps reaching out. So one of the things that I loved about Lewis is that he always offers us one final chance. And I think that Oral will get a final chance as
0: well. I think we've got time for maybe two more, and then we'll wrap up and we'll move the remaining questions to next time you come on, because we then have four chapters to look at but an entire book to reevaluate. <laughs>
1: sure absolutely you know and maybe doing some questions at some point down the road um, might be a, a fun thing to do you know on youtube or on slack or i find that if i can do it speaking is a whole lot better than me taking the time to write out all the answers and so i appreciate the chance to answer a couple of these um rowdy asks about ugliness and uh he says i'm curious if you could address the significance of Orwell's external ugliness The necessity of external ugliness um, arguably might have been sufficient just to have internal ugliness. Um, Peter Skakel, in his book Reason and Imagination, is really, really good on this. Skakel makes the point, and I believe him, that Orwell is physically ugly. But remember that physical ugliness can be a gift. If God has made us this way, I can either say yes to God or I can say no to God. And my ugliness might be, there might be great benefits to being ugly. I'm not tempted to vanity, right? Remember in mere Christianity that Lewis says that I'm not prone to gambling, but I probably lack that positive correspondent to which gambling is the perversion. Even physical ugliness can be a gift. And here's what Orwell will say in book two. Forgive me. She says, a a terrible sheer thought, huge as a cliff, towered up before me, infinitely likely to be true. No man will love you, though you gave your life for him, unless you have a pretty face. So might it not be the gods will not love you, however you try to please them and whatever you suffer, unless you have a beauty of soul in either race for the love of man or for the love of a god. The winners and losers are marked out from birth. We bring our ugliness in both kinds with us into the world. With it our destiny. So what does she make of her ugliness?
0: It's almost like she's leaning into this was all predestined, yes. uh, I was born ugly, both exteriorly and interiorly, I, it sounds like she's saying I can't make myself beautiful either interiorly or exteriorly, and this is just the way things are. Uh, And obviously, the Christian wants to jump in and talk about grace.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. But she can make herself internally beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that Lewis may be thinking here of Charles Williams, who he called an ugly man. And he had a face (laughs) of a monkey, um, but he had this beauty of soul. And that beauty of soul made him so fetching to people. And you soon forget somebody's ugliness if they're always acting in a beautiful way. Who knows if Sarah Smith of Golders Green was physically at all attractive?
0: (laughs) Yeah, we don't know.
1: Do we all know people who are not physically the most attractive, but who are incredibly loving and kind and generous to us? And do we care what their face looks like? And I don't even need to begin in our day and age to talk about people who are beautiful of face, but ugly of soul. I mean, you know, just turn on TV.
0: Isn't that basically the point of Instagram?
1: (laughs) Indeed it is. Indeed it is.
0: But in relation to that, I can't help but think of mere Christianity. It's the chapter where Lewis talks about psychoanalysis, yes. basically about that we have raw materials. So you might be able to argue that Orwell has the decks stacked against her in some things, in terms of her physical appearance, but she's also given tremendous gifts far above that of any of the people of the land of Glom. Absolutely. And it's a question of what she does with them, and it doesn't even have to be something great. We're back to heavenly and hellish creatures. It's the small decisions that we make that will be sending us and shaping the interior part of ourselves in one direction or the other.
1: Absolutely. And we are becoming more and more like the thing that we pursue. Right. Mm. And any small deviation from God and seeking God's image and his beauty in our heart will grow by increments until it becomes horrible for us. But in the same way, any, even the beginning of any virtue will get us closer and closer to God. Remember what he says in Mere Christianity? He says, I think that a prostitute may be closer to heaven than a cold-hearted prig. But of course, it is better to be neither. <laughs> and remember that even her voice is beautiful. out is we're flirting with her because yeah. she has a beautiful voice. What we are and what we have is our gift from God to us to make of what we will. And ultimately, we can either pray the Blessed Virgin's prayer, yes, Lord, or we can say no, Lord. And, mm-hmm. and it all comes down to saying yes to God, whether we've been given favor or not. It's saying yes to whatever he has given us and certainly has given us all great gifts. And what we shall do with them, uh, I think, determines our eternal destiny.
0: He gives, he takes away. Yes. But blessed be the
1: name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's that attitude of more love for God than selfishness towards himself and listening to his wife like a dripping faucet that allows Job to be restored and allows his whole fortunes to be restored. And that's what God wishes for us, right? Once the, the man with a serpent says no to his own selfish addiction, it gets slain and then turns into the thing by which we progress. I think that even Orwell's ugliness could have been a gift to her had she allowed it to. But the book is not done yet, and perhaps she still will.
0: (laughs) And on that very hopeful note, uh, thanks for coming on and talking us through part one of Till We Have Faces. Where can people go to find out more about your work?
1: For right now, the placeholder, the the place where I'm camping out online, is mythoflove.net. And I've got some announcements for some upcoming things. I've been uh, so flattered to be asked by the Anselm Society to be their keynote speaker for their Imagination Redeemed Conference. And that, I believe, I say this under correction, it's April 23rd, I think, 23rd and 24th. Um, it's that weekend in April in Glen Erie, Colorado. So if you want to come to a Tudor castle and hear about the recovery of the lost imagination, I can't wait to, to do that with them. And there's a little bit of information and a link there. I'll be talking about the silver chair and the rescuing of brilliant. So you can find me at mytholove.net. You can find me on Instagram and on Facebook and on Twitter as at Andrew Lazo, or I think Facebook is uh, at Mr. Andrew Lazo, something like that. But I'm I'm not hiding out there
0: um, at (laughs) all. And as usual, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And listeners, Andrew will be back again to talk about the entire book when we finish part two. So please get on Patreon, get on Slack, post your questions for him. And join us then.
1: By the way, David, I wanted to let you know I was uh, the C.S. Lewis Foundation was contacted by the Mike Slater Show, and I'm not—he's a talk show guy, uh, talk radio guy—and he interviewed me on Valentine's Day about the four loves and two AF faces. And I got a quick shout out about pints with Jack. <laughs> uh, he wrote wrote that down, but uh, mostly I'm just going to keep sipping uh, good good scotch from my pints with Jack glass,
0: which makes even the cheapest of scotches. Not that we drink, so it's (laughs) delicious.
1: It does indeed.
0: So listeners, Andrew will be back again to talk to us about the entire book when we finish part two. So please post your questions for him on the Slack channel and join us then when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers.